Uh, Last week, we looked at Ephesians 3. We saw the church was not an add-on to the Christian life. It was actually the primary thing God is doing in this world to show heaven and earth the glory and wisdom of our God. Well, this morning, we continue in that series and looking at the topic of unity. And anytime you talk about church unity, it's a good idea to be on your knees and praying. So why don't we ask the Lord's blessing before we begin? Uh, Lord Jesus, we, we do ask your help. It's so easy for us to draw lines, whether those be uh, the lines the world draws or battle lines within us, things that tear the church apart. And yet we know, Lord, you are calling us to unity. So would you this morning, by your word, would you put an urgency within us to fight for unity within our body? And would you remind us of the deep, deep reasons we have to stay united? The work that you have done to bring us to yourself and all the things we share that transcend everything in this world. Would you unite us even by the preaching of your word this morning, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, file it under so strange that it must be true, the lunchroom on the set of the Planet of the Apes. Not the recent series with all the computer-generated gorillas and all that. No, no, this is the Charlton Heston old school one, uh, back when all of the actors and extras actually wore real, authentic gorilla costumes. And uh, with an operation that size and the intricacy of the costumes, The actors could not just take off their costumes midway through the day and put them back on, which meant all of their breaks, and yes, even their lunch, was spent in costume. Well, that set off something that could only be described as a weird social experiment. What would happen in the lunchroom? These are the words of Charlton Heston himself. An instinctive segregation set in. Not only would the apes eat together, But the chimpanzees ate with chimpanzees, the gorillas ate with the gorillas, the orangutans ate with the orangutans, and the humans would eat off by themselves. It was quite spooky. (laughs) Well, uh, that's as odd as you would imagine. It's a true story, though. It turns out that people find all sorts of reasons, all sorts of lines to draw to divide and to create a false type of unity. Now that's certainly true out in the world. You can think of all the different ways that people have some semblance of unity. Maybe a unity of being the citizen of the same nation. Or the unity that comes from living in the same city and rooting for the same sports team. Or the unity of your kid going to the same high school. Or the unity of having a same hobby of some sort. Or maybe the unity of heritage, of being from the same family. And yet, the question of how do you actually achieve unity leads to an even more important question. How do you actually maintain it? Once you find it, how do you hang on to it? Well, the church is a bit of an expert in failing to hang on to unity. Uh, I'm sure you have your own examples along the way. I, I know of one church where the whether the choir should wear robes became such a hot dispute that it split the church right down the middle. Uh, Another one had a different variation on worship wars. They had one worship leader that was pitted against another worship leader, and two different factions in the congregation ended up with uh, a division there. I I think the worst of them I came across was 
a church split that started with an elder at a hot pie social. The elder did not get a big enough slice of pie, which set off a series of events that eventually split the church. That's not a, not a, it's not a joke, it's true. You might say Christians have, a cottage, have made a cottage industry out of finding reasons to divide. And yet, is that what God intends for us? What sort of unity might the church of the Lord Jesus Christ be called to? And more importantly, once we find that unity, how in the world do we hold on to it? Well, to answer those questions we have in front of us, Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. A letter written to be passed around from church to church with the all-important message that we must be urgently called to unity. We must fight for it. And yet, we will only maintain that unity if we remember what it is that brought us together in the first place. We'll see that in two sections. First, in verses 1 through 3, the urgent call to unity. That all Christians in their local churches are called to fight for unity. And then in verses 4 through 6, thankfully, the unchanging reason for unity. That our unity is about so much more than preference or the age we live in that our unity goes back to our God who called us together. So let's begin this in verses 1 through 3. Look at the urgent call to unity. We're at a bit of a turning point in the book of Ephesians. Roughly speaking, you could say the first three chapters lay out the grand work God is doing in this world to glorify himself, calling Christians together into the church through the blood of Jesus on the cross. And then in verse 4 through 6, uh, chapters 4 through 6, he, it starts to turn its attention to more practical how that actually lives out in someone's life. The passage we're looking at uh, here, the, the main thrust of it actually comes in verse 3. So uh, look with me in verse 3. It's this first part of the verse, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. It, it's a little harder to see it in the way it's translated there in English, but that is a, an extremely emphatic command. It would be like the Apostle Paul saying, strive for unity. If you do nothing else, hold on to your unity. That's the main imperative of this whole passage. Uh, with so much energy behind that command, you, you, these are the question, well, what sort of unity is Paul talking about? And how do we actually strive for it? Well, the rest of the uh, verses around it actually fill that in. So first, what type of unity is it that we're being called to? Look at verse one. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urging them to walk in a manner that's live a life in, of this sort, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And this is where it gets specific. The sort of unity that is being called for is the sort of unity that's distinctly Christian. It is the sort of unity between brothers and sisters in Christ, not any other sort of unity that you might find in this world. When Paul says that to walk in a manner worthy or consistent with the calling, that word for calling, as Paul uses it, is always effectual. That is to say, if God calls you, then that means you will respond in faith. You will be incorporated into the body of the church. You will be saved on the final day. The, the calling of God results in a Christian. 
So Paul is in effect saying that there is a type of unity unique to those who are been brought into the body of Christ as the church. Now, now realize this means that it, he is excluding all the other types of unity that we might try and have. I mean, you have a sort of unity with anyone who's religious, right? You're, you're into religion. You have that in common with each other. You could say you have a sort of unity with anyone that's a monotheist that believes there's only one God. You could share that with an Orthodox Jew, you might even say you have a, a certain type of unity with different flavors of the Christian history, history of the church, like a, an Orthodox or a Catholic. And yet the type of unity that Paul is talking about here is the type of unity that only can be found for people that have embraced the same gospel, that have believed in Jesus for the salvation of their sins and who find him alone to be their hope for eternal life. So nothing that undermines the gospel or contradicts the gospel can fit into this category of unity that Paul is calling toward. You could think of another spot in Paul's writings, like in Galatians 1, where he said, even if uh, an angel from heaven or anyone else were to preach to you a, go a gospel different than the one that I preached to you, let them be eternally condemned. The type of unity Paul is calling for is the type of unity among true Christians who have believed the true gospel. Well, that leads to a very important question. How is it that true Christians are to strive for this unity? You remember how strong that command was. Well, that's what we see at the second half of verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the unity is of the Spirit. The, the Spirit is the one that grants it in the bond of peace. That last phrase, in the bond of peace, is describing peace not as the end goal. Peace is the instrument to bring about the goal of unity. So you're going to say, how are we supposed to wage war and bring about unity within our body? Well, the it, way you do it, the tool you use is peace. Now, peace is not the same as appeasement. You can think back to World War II, to the great failure of politics, Neville Chamberlain. He tried to appease Adolf Hitler to keep there from being any sort of discord by just giving him whatever he wanted. Now, that's clearly not true. Jesus certainly didn't act that way. Paul didn't act that way. And yet there is a type of peace that preserves unity within the body of Christ. It's an active thing that you seek after. To quote Pastor Kent Hughes, Christians are to be people that wage peace. It's not something that happens by accident. It's something we work toward and strive for again and again and again. And only when a church does that will it remain united. Now, I realize even as I say that, I've given you two categories that are pretty high up in the abstraction kind of world. This idea of unity and peace, but what does it actually mean? Well, Paul gets it right down to where the rubber meets the road in verse 2. Filling out what it means to wage peace. Here it is. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. He gives us four attributes or four virtues that spell out the sort of peace-waging nature of the body of Christ that will stick together. And when you take all these four attributes together, I, I don't know about you, but it sounds a lot like Jesus. 
Someone who is always humble, who has gentleness. It's the sort of person that never seems to start a fight. Someone that's patient, that bears with someone, uh, someone else in love, even when they're offended. That's the sort of person you can't pick a fight with even if you try to. If these virtues mark the body of Christ, then the unity that is ours can be preserved. And yet, let's realize that's not the way the human heart normally responds, now is it? We find reasons to be offended, sometimes even with the smallest of things. Sometimes even we end up finding reasons to be offended that are totally in our heads. I I was thinking about this topic this week of the idea of ungracious assumptions. You You know how quickly an ungracious assumption can change your disposition toward another believer. Now imagine on Sunday you have some sort of an interaction, maybe you're having a good conversation, and, and then they abruptly, they break it off. Maybe they talk to someone else or just they leave, and, and you're left wondering, whoa, well that was kind of strange, what happened there? And then by Monday, that kind of being perplexed has changed, and uh, you know, that was awfully inconsiderate of them. That, that was not a kind thing for them to do. And then by Tuesday, that has changed into, you know, Come to think of it, that is just like them. I mean, I remember that, that other time they did that thing to me, and they never said they were sorry for it. And, you know, they, they're just getting away with stuff in here. We can't let this stand. And then by Wednesday, maybe you're talking with someone, and you just find a, a little bit of that peeking out. You say something that's a little ungracious about them. By the time Sunday comes around, you see them. You don't even want to talk to them. You just walk the other way. Now, that whole scenario can play out totally in your head without them saying or doing anything to you, just because you have assumed motives behind their actions or seeming lack of actions. I I know that this plays out in my own heart. It can happen in the church so, so easily. Let me just say, brothers and sisters, there are enough genuine offenses to go around. We don't need to go inventing them. (laughs) We as believers are called to a regular sort of maintenance to our unity in our body of our local church. When someone offends us, we have an option before us. Either we judge it to be such a serious offense that we go and we broach the subject with them and try to work it out, or to use the language of the passage, we bear in love. We cover over that offense and we say, it's gone, forget about it. I don't need to bring it up. I'm never gonna think about it again. When a church does that again and again, well, it has a way of keeping the bonds of unity tight and the church is able to stick together. Realize also that we are in need of regular reminders for this sort of maintenance of our body life. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why uh, Jesus gave us the Lord's table. Once a month, every, every month on the third Sunday of the month, uh, we as a congregation take the Lord's table together. And in doing so, we're reminded both of the price of what it took to bring us into the body of Christ and the fact that we have obligations to each other. We are now one body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means every time we are taking communion, we are supposed to take a sort of spiritual inventory and ask, is there anyone that I am at odds with? Is there anyone I'm holding a grudge against? 
Now, Jesus himself gave us the priority. If we find that to be the case, the obligation is to go reconcile with your brother over even your devotion to God. As a preacher, there would be nothing more encouraging than to see someone stand up, disrupt communion, and go and have a reconciling conversation because they were prompted by the Spirit that they need to right this wrong. Now, if there's any action that all of us can take, maybe nothing as overt as what I've been describing is true of you at the moment. I think all of us are called at the very least to pray for the unity of our church, to regularly be on our knees, realizing that this can go sideways so much faster than we realize. We've, I listed some of those crazy examples along the way, and we should not think we are somehow immune to it as a, a body. If we're not regularly doing this sort of maintenance, if we're not regularly asking the Lord's help, I have no doubt we would find a reason to one day break our fellowship and divide just like so many other churches before us. If you're not already doing so, please pray for the unity of our church. And this week particularly, pray for the congregational meeting coming up. It's really important for us, even as we consider important matters, to do so with humility, a shared love, and uh, remembering what it was that brought us together in the first place. Well, I don't know about you, but um, that sounds like a pretty tall order. It's essentially asking us to respond the way Jesus would respond with every one of our brothers and sisters every time something goes wrong. And I know I don't live up to that. And I know it would be easy to be overwhelmed by that command with so much energy behind it, which is why I'm so thankful that the Apostle Paul gave us not just the call toward, toward unity, he also gave us an unchanging reason for unity. An unchanging reason for unity. That's our second point in verses four through six. The way it's structured, each of the verses has, um, so there's three, uh, three clauses, and each of them has uh, a member of the Trinity assigned to them, as well as three things that bring us together, or three, three shared things about us that are reasons for our unity. The first is in verse four. It can be summed up this way. We share that we are all united by the Spirit. Look in verse four. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. First, there's one body, Body is a common way of describing the, the church, the, the body of Christ. Now, when Paul says there's one body, what he has in mind there is if, if you had spiritual eyes to see, you would realize that all believers in Jesus all around the world, wherever they're scattered, up in heaven, they are actually united into one gathering, one church that will worship God forever in his throne room. Now, until that day, though, those believers exist in individual little churches, little expressions of that heavenly community that are also the very body of Christ where they are. One scholar, Peter O'Brien, he wrote it this way. He said, each congregation is a local manifestation of this heavenly entity, not a part of it. There's a, a weight to being the body of Christ. It's reflecting a, a heavenly reality that one day all believers around the world and what we call the universal church will enjoy together. 
But there's also uh, oneness, not just in the body, but the thing that brought us together in that body, that is the spirit. One body and one spirit. That is the, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does a work when someone puts their faith in tr- Christ. He's given them a new heart. He brings them together. He unites them with Jesus. And in that union with Jesus, they find themselves united with all the other believers. When we say that we as a local church are united, we mean that the Spirit has brought us together. It's a supernatural work that he does. We all have this in common. The same Spirit has indwelled us. The same Spirit has brought us together. And the same Spirit will keep us together. Third thing, one hope. That is, we together look forward to the same glorious future. We will spend eternity worshiping our God in joy. This means that our relationships with each other, even in the local church, they have all the time in the world. I mean, in one sense, you don't have all the time in the world. In another sense, maybe there's someone that you wish you got to hear their testimony more fully, or maybe there's someone that you have a sweet fellowship with that moves away or transfers to another church for some reason. You know, you're going to have all of the new heavens and the new earth and the eternity before us to catch up with them. There's something wonderful about realizing we're all headed the same place with the same glorious future in front of us. So we're all united by the Spirit. The second thing is we're all saved by Jesus. That's in verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Uh, early on, the church took the, the exclamation, there we go, uh, that Jesus is Lord to be definitive. That is to say, Jesus is the highest of all. Now, that's picking up on Old Testament expectation that Yahweh is Lord. That Applying it to Jesus is saying that Jesus is truly God and he is our master. That Jesus who is Lord also, one Lord, one faith, uh, that, that Jesus who is Lord is also the one we have believed in through the same message. That one faith it's not talking about your, your faith that you put in Jesus as your trust in him. It's talking about faith as the content of what you believe. Uh, like the once for all delivered faith given to the saints. You might say the, the gospel itself. If you're a Christian, it's because you believed the same things as every other Christian that there is in this world. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins through no merit of your own. That the only reason you're acceptable to God is because of what Jesus did for you. And yet because of what Jesus did for you, you have all the riches of heaven to look forward to. We have that in common with one another because of our one faith. There is only one true faith, the gospel of Jesus. And then third, there is the one baptism. And now you might be thinking, aha, here we go. Time for the Baptist to get on his hobby horse here. Um... Now, let me just say on the front end, we are a Baptist church, and so we do have convictions that uh, you should be baptized after a clear profession of faith, and you should be baptized by immersion in water. And yet, even as we are convinced that's what the Bible teaches, we recognize that there are Christians, genuine Christians, that disagree with us on that very thing, and that means there are going to be churches that don't uh, express baptism exactly the same way. I don't think the Apostle Paul had anything about our modern questions of baptism in view. When he talks about one baptism, 
I think what he's doing here is what's called a metonym, or it's uh, something that stands in for a much bigger whole. I think Paul is just talking about the salvation we share. Now, let me just show you that that, that is something Paul does in other, another place. If you have your Bible, you can flip to Galatians 3.27. Galatians 3.27. Where I don't think he's talking about water baptism. I think he's using baptism as shorthand for the fact that you have experienced salvation by being in Christ. Galatians 3.27 For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Their baptism is being used for the whole of the conversion experience. It would be a little bit like if I were to uh, say, you know, um, it was so wonderful to watch this family have this wonderful moment together. Their, their, Their sweet little girl, she grew up. And they got to be there when she walked down the aisle. If I said she walked down the aisle, most of you would catch what I'm saying. Is that she got married, right? Now, realize walking down just any aisle doesn't make you married. You can walk down the aisle of an airliner, and you are no more married than when you started, right? And I think it would even be possible that you could get married without moving. If you had the right people around you, it's possible your feet could stay exactly where you are and at the end of the ceremony, you would be married, right? And yet we use as a, just kind of a, a stand-in for the whole of talking about marriage, walking down the aisle. So I think that's what Paul's doing here when he says one baptism. He's talking about the shared salvation that all of the church universal experiences. And he's saying our unity is based on the fact that we were all saved by Jesus. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other savior that can save you. There's no other message that can save you. Only the gospel of Jesus. And that, that is an unchanging reason for our unity. Third reason for our unity, verse six, that we are all ruled by our heavenly father. We are all ruled by our heavenly father. One God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We were walking um, yesterday, and uh, Precious was, as she often does, asking Lillian questions about God and the Bible. And so she was trying to get her to talk about how God is in control of everything, this category of sovereignty. God is the king over his creation. And so she asked Lillian, Lillian, what does it mean that God is king over the world? And uh, Lillian came close. She said, it means God is our sovereign. And uh, the person said, oh, you know, we're trying to say God is sovereign. And I thought about it. I'm like, wait a second. That is actually a really important distinction. And so I think it's one that helps us understand this verse. You see, it is true that God is sovereign. God created the world and everything in it. He owns everything in it. He turns the heart of the king like a waterway, whichever he want, the way he wants. He rules over the world right now. He is sovereign in that sense. And yet, I don't think that's what Paul means in verse 6. Oh, on the surface, it sounds like it. One God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. Sounds like it's just talking about any human being that lives on this earth. But remember, the context of what Paul is talking about, he's talking about unity within the church. So what does he mean by that? Well, I think he means 
What would you mean if you said God is our sovereign? Well, it's true God is sovereign over all of creation. There's something different about the body of believers. There's something different about Christians. Christians aren't just a part of this world, although we are part of it. We're also the first fruits, the the first taste of the world to come, of the new creation God is doing in the new heavens and the new earth. And who is ruler over the new heavens and the new earth? Well, our heavenly father. So this is saying that God is sovereign, yes, but he is also our sovereign. He is our father. He is our king. And that will not change whether we are on this side or the other side of eternity. And that means we all report to the same boss. We have the same king whose rule we are under, and he is a a good, benevolent king, as Luke said before. So in summary, this means, brothers and sisters, we have an unchanging set of reasons for unity. A type of unity that goes so much deeper than nationality or ethnicity, so much deeper than socioeconomic background or hobbies or any other preference we might have, so much deeper even than blood, the bind, the, the ties of within our family. Our basis for unity is unchanged because it goes back to the very God who made us and the work he did to bring us together in one in the body of Christ. Now, friends, there are a host of implications to draw from this. Let me give you a few. First is realize the delight in living out this unity. This unity within the body of Christ, when it is working the way it is intended to be, it is so delightful. You get a chance to hear someone's testimony, and maybe it's the first time that you're in small group with them, and you just love that person right off the bat. And it's as if you've known each other for years, even though you just met because of this unity you have. You, you share so much more than any earthly friendship could offer you because you are together in Christ. Now, for students, let me just tell you that there is a wonderful type of expression of this that you can find as you get to know people within our church that are also Christians that are of different ages than you. If you're not already serving in your church, this is a great way for you to build that sort of relationship. Maybe you serve on the tech team or on the hospitality team of some sort. I can almost guarantee you most of the people you're going to serve alongside aren't going to be the same age as you or go to the same school as you. Over the course of serving together, you're going to find there's something really good to those relationships. God intended for that. Don't shy away from it. Seek it out. Now, as wonderful as this unity is, realize also we need to be really careful not to monkey around with it. To return to the Planet of the Apes story, you know, we can put an overlay on our church between gorillas and orangutans and chimpanzees and the like. It's really easy to find reasons, even reasons that are okay. Like, you know, there's nothing wrong with sharing an interest or being from the same city. And yet, if we're not careful, those types of affinity can actually start to undermine the true unity we have within the body of Christ. Be very careful about monkeying around with your unity in Christ. All right, I'm done with the gorilla analogies, don't worry. Another implication is we need to realize we don't have a corner on this sort of unity in our local church. We already mentioned the difference between the universal church, that's believers all over the world, 
and the local expression of that, that would be the people in, within the membership of a local church. It's right for there to be a distinction between local churches. Uh, this morning, Eric Swanson prayed for Zionsville Fellowship to give us a great model, excuse me, of keeping churches distinct, and yet realizing that there is a type of unity between churches that have the same foundation. That if they have believed the same gospel, if they preach the same word of God, if they have the same spirit at work among them, even if our churches are separate in that we organize differently and have different budgets and different ministries, we're on the same team. Now, we should not be trying to compete against other faithful local churches in our community. We should celebrate when things go well for them, and we should mourn when things don't. There should even be times where we recommend people to other churches. Maybe they live closer, or maybe our church has a ministry that will particularly minister to them in this season, and we shouldn't have any hesitation about that, as if somehow our corner of the kingdom is the most important one. I love the way that that's been modeled by some of the churches. Uh, I've mentioned this a number of times because it just moved me. But right down the street, uh, East 91st Street, E91, uh, Pastor Grover prayed for our congregation the first Sunday we were in this building as a new church plant. Uh, I hope our church always understands that our unity, as wonderful as uh, the unity we have within our body, that there is also a heavenly unity and that we uh, should uh, desire what's best for other local churches. And then the, the final implication is, I think the touchiest, is that we should have hope that goes beyond our church experience. We should have hope that goes beyond our church experience. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning, and your story is much like so many others, and you've frankly been hurt within a church. Maybe you were a part of a church that frankly was a hot mess. And somewhere along the way, someone did something horrible to you. Somewhere along the way, you got the message that your Christianity wasn't up to snuff. Somehow or the other, you're contemplating just giving up on church altogether. Maybe I'll just slip in and slip out, listen to sermons, but not get too close so I don't get burned again. Friend, if that's you, first please hear, I'm sorry for whatever happened. No church is perfect. All of us fail to live up to our call to peace and unity at some point. And yet there are a lot of unhealthy churches. And in many of those churches, there's a lot of wounded Christians. But friend, realize also that as hard as it may be to get your eyes past your hurt, that what God has said about the church still is true. That Jesus promised that the, the church would endure, that he would continue building his church, and that the gates of hell would not stand against it. That God's purposes in this world are for believers to be a part of a local church, to live out the commands of what it means to be a disciple. Now, I, I know there's maybe things you need to work through. Let me invite you to come talk with an elder or with myself. We, I would love to show you what our church is like, and hopefully the Lord will give you confidence that there is hope that you can be a part of a local church. Let me just also say that as many churches as divide and poor examples of unity we see, there are other churches that stand the test of time and by God's grace continue to demonstrate the unity of the body of Christ. And as we look forward, we should have hope. Even as we pray that the Lord would grant it to us, we should have hope that maybe our church would be a reflection of the unity in heaven where there will be no more schisms, 
There will be no more church fights. The church will not be a hot mess ever again where a perfect unity that goes on forever will be shared around the throne of God as we sing praises to our King. We should look forward with hope that God's purposes in this world, in the church, will be accomplished. And maybe, just maybe, we'll get to see a little bit of that in our local church. One of the most beloved hymns that was ever written is the the church's one foundation. It was uh, written by Samuel Stone in the 1860s in South Africa. It was in a tough time for the church at that point. There was a local bishop that had denied that the Bible was true. And in all of the proceedings that surrounded that denial, the church was being torn into factions. The bishop's name was Bishop Colenso. It's kind of an ominous sounding last name if you ask me. Bishop Colenso and his work were a great discouragement. And yet listen to the hope written in these words. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Though with a scornful wonder, men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Brothers and sisters, we should have hope that the urgent call to unity matched with the unchanging reason for our unity would allow us to glorify God as a church, that we would reflect the unity of the body of Christ in heaven that will go on for eternity. Let's pray.